Today, we have Jonathan Nichols on the show. Jonathan is a real estate entrepreneur and an Ironman athlete. Jonathan spent seven years in the aerospace engineering industry before venturing into real estate. He is now focused on multifamily syndication through his firm, Apogee Capital, providing excellent investment opportunities in the multifamily asset class. Jonathan's passion lies in helping other people achieve financial freedom, and he balances this with his love for Ironman triathlons. We have a lot to dive into, so stay tuned. I'm Darren Batchelder, an ex-corporate guy turned business owner and real estate investor. Have you ever wondered, how are you going to get from where you are today to where you want to be with your retirement investments? We discovered a better way, and we can help you get there. We have a four-step capital preservation and wealth building plan. Imagine having the financial freedom and time freedom to do what you want, when you want, and with who you want. A better way to preserve your capital a better way to build your wealth, and a better way to save taxes. If you are a C-level executive or other high net worth individual and you want to find out how, then get started by scheduling your discovery call today at darrenbatchelder.com forward slash investor call. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Jonathan Nichols. Jonathan, appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Darren. Excited to be here. So just a little bit on how, um, you know, we know each other. I, this is the first time we're actually talking together. Um, but I know of Jonathan through, he's been on a number of different podcasts and he's in social media and he's in the multifamily space. So with all of that, I wanted to get a better understanding as to what he's been up to. Um, so before we get started, can you share with the listeners how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Yeah, absolutely. So um, like you said, Darren, I'm a multifamily syndicator here in the DFW Metroplex. My wife and I, we started out in real estate five years ago, investing in residential short-term rental properties. So we have 19 of those that we still own and operate. Um, and then on the multifamily side, we're general partners and a little over 400 units and then limited partners I don't remember exactly, but well over a thousand. So that's that's kind of our experience level. Pretty much everything here in Texas or in Oklahoma for markets. Fantastic. So I read your background, and you come from a aerospace engineering background. Um, so how, one, how is that you were in that space for you know confirmed? I think ten years, and confirm how you know having that experience helped you moving into the multifamily space. And then, um, you know, I know a few folks that also have come over from that space. So I don't know if you know them, Dustin Miles. Um, he's from, I, I, I do um, know Dustin. Multifamily. I do you know, know Dustin. Dustin. Absolutely. So, so he was, he was an aerospace engineer and also, um, Alex and Sarah May out of Colorado. Okay. I don't think um, I've had the pleasure to meet them, but I'll have to look okay. them up. Fantastic. So share kind of how that experience helps you in 
your role as an investor? You know, it's interesting because I have a lot of people that ask me, like, why would you leave an aerospace engineering job to go be a real estate investor? And so it's something that I've spent a lot of time thinking about. And for me, I think it goes back to how I became an aerospace engineer. And that was, I was eight years old in my living room as a kid, and I was watching the movie Apollo 13. And I was fascinated by all these guys in the in the command room that were, you know, calculating these orbits and trajectories and all this. And it was something that it looked so complicated, but yet so meaningful. And I think that's really what attracted me to aerospace as an industry. And when I was a student in school, I loved what I studied. I worked incredibly hard at it, really enjoyed it. So much so that even after I graduated and started working full time, I actually pursued my master's degree part-time because I just wanted to keep learning more. So that's the cool part of the story. The not so cool part is that, you know, oftentimes in the corporate world, you kind of get pigeonholed into one little avenue and, you know, your career, you know, your life is not necessarily like a movie, right? So um, I found myself after having been in the aerospace industry for several years, kind of being pigeonholed into more project manager roles, or if I was doing technical, just one little specific area and nothing else. And I started to get bored. And so it was about that same time that my wife and I began investing in real estate and that business continued to grow and grow. And I felt that sense of challenge in real estate, in investing that I had, you know, kind of sought in the world of aerospace. And so um, that's one thing I really enjoy about this industry is it's not easy. It's, you know, especially being an active investor is not for everyone. Um, and so I really enjoy the challenge on it. And I think the cognitive skills, the logical reasoning, um, the ability to handle stress and make decisions quickly are all things that I learned in the world of aerospace engineering that, you know, now I utilize as an investor. That's awesome. I, I love that. So, First of all, you said learning, you were talking about learning. I love, I love the fact that, you know, as, as young people, you go to, go to school and you're forced to learn whatever you're being taught, you know, and then you get out and you go to college and then you become an engineer and engineering, you know, is, is big on problem solving and how to, you know, how to come up with solutions. But then, I've talked to a number of engineers and like you said, that, you know, you get pigeonholed. There's some engineers that they have, you know, their mindset that they're going to do these amazing engineering feats, but then they're working on something really, really small. Yeah. And, and so that, you know, that boredom, that challenge um, is kind of what it sounds like is really prompted you to, to go off on your own. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's interesting you say that. I think now being an entrepreneur, being a business owner myself, I kind of understand the situation a lot better. Um, but if you think about it in the business world, it's all about systems and processes, right? Like that's how you make an efficient business that will generate a profit. But what that means down on the individual level is it's, it's almost like they need individual cogs in the machine, right? And so you know, they teach you how to do this one specific part and put you there. Um, and that's your purpose in the company is to keep that particular part of the, the wheel turning. So, um, you know, it's, it's great from a business efficiency standpoint. But, you know, if you want to challenge engineers and, you know, keep them on their toes, it doesn't may not be the best solution. So at least that's what I found in, in my case. 
I, I get it. I get it. So you graduated from Texas A&M. My son just graduated from Texas A&M. So, okay. um, Whoop. you know, congrats on that. Right. Um, so when I looked at your, your background, your first, um, what I would say larger deal, 75 unit complex was, was down in college station. So why did you pick that? And was that student housing or was that traditional multifamily? Yeah. All great questions. Um, so that was our first deal we did as lead sponsors. We had co-GP'd a couple deals before that. Um, okay. But yeah, that was our first deal as the, the lead sponsors on a large syndication project. And it was a market that I was very familiar with, but wasn't particularly necessarily like focused on. Um, but that deal was brought to me off market through a broker relationship that I had. Um, and said broker does not live in College Station. And so when he thought of A&M, College Station deal there, he thought of me. And so... He bought the deal to me and it's it's a very new deal. It's a 2012 build, which not your typical syndication type of right. property. Um, and so the value add component, you know, what drove the returns on that deal was implementing professional management. It was owned by a mom and pop. Um, they basically just cared about keeping it 100% occupied and low drama all the time, um, which usually results in, you know, having rents well below market. And so we took it over, had almost, required almost nothing from a CapEx budget perspective. Wow. And then, you know, year one, we were able to push the average rents, I think $125. And then this year we're up like another 40 or 50 beyond that. Um, so that project's been fantastic. Um, plus it's just a newer property that doesn't have as many issues as, you know, what you'll see in an older one. Um, as far as student housing, it, it's located a half a mile from the campus. So we do have students who live there. Um, one of the challenges I actually faced on that deal was the lending um, and, and getting lenders to look at a project that had a certain amount of students. And so at the time I bought it, I think it was about 60%. And even though there are year long leases and we're renting by the unit and not by the bed, um, it basically the lenders were not super happy with it. And they said, we want it below 40%. So part of our business plan now is we're pushing that student population down just a little bit to get below that 40% mark. So that when we go sell it, you know, our buyer will be able to get an agency loan and therefore, you know, pay us a lot more for the property. So. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's not just pushing and maximizing the NOI, but it's also positioning it for, for a sale to somebody else and how, how it's going to be perceived and, and, from their lenders. Absolutely. And you know, it's, it's something you, you see that in the multifamily world all the time, especially right now. You have a lot of projects on bridge loans where they're 80% occupied, 85% occupied, and they're working hard to get to that 90% hurdle. So then they can sell the deal um, to a potential buyer, you know, and, and allow them to get an agency loan and therefore commanding a much higher price. And so it's actually something you see quite a lot. I would say the the, the student to non-student strategy has been a little bit unique to our project, but it's, it's been very easy to do just considering the location and, and demographic that our property attracts. So talk about having to, like on a traditional multifamily, you're going to have turnover, say, every month, mm. right? And it's more evenly dispersed throughout the year. But, you know, with, with something that has 60% students, all, all those students are turning over at the same time, 
you know, right before the new school year. So talk about the challenge that you have just from, you know, doing those turns in that short period of time. Yeah. So it's an important question that anyone buying and, and, you know, I don't really consider myself a a student housing person. I'm a multifamily owner that just happens to have students in my property. Right. right? But, but the question is still pertinent. Um, The first and most important thing is your property manager. And so, you know, if you're just buying a multifamily property in general, if you're an experienced operator, you recognize you need a property management company that fits the profile of your of your property. So, you know, think things like location and size. You know, some property management companies only do 100 plus units. Others, they only do smaller properties. And their payroll and how they do things is their systems are set up for that type of property. So it's the same thing in the student housing world. And the most challenging part, as you mentioned, being the turns. Um, it goes to several things. It's, it's you kind of play defense first. Um, you know, one way we're doing that is by, and on our property is, is reducing the student population some. Um, but then beyond that, it's really looking for those renewals, right? Um, so if there's a student who, you know, we're leasing by the year, so they know up front they're okay with staying there through the summer. If there's a student who's continuing to study, you know, we're giving them very fair renewal rates. We're, you know, asking for that renewal commitment very early on, as in like February, March timeframe, you know, stuff like that to encourage as many renewals as we can get. And then beyond that, um, it's really identifying when do people want to move into the property, which is obviously August, because that's when students are coming in for school. And so, you know, we set the leases to be July ending so that, you know, it minimizes that vacancy time. Um, and then after that, it's just really making sure your property manager has a good schedule for the turns that they're walking through the units ahead of time. They know what they need. Um, basically just that they're organized, like every manager should be, but especially so because they're going to have, you know, let's say a couple dozen turns on this property in July, as opposed to like the normal, you know, two turns you might see in a month on a property this size. Right. Two things. I, I, I don't have any student housing type of properties, but two things that, you know, I, I did pay the rent for, for my son and I'm paying for my daughter now. She's, she's down in Florida, but, um, you know, two things I really like about how that's situated is that, you know, from an ownership perspective is one you touched on with renewals. Like, I mean, you know, my son would move in and then it was like two or three months later, like, you know, Hey, we need to renew or, or, you know, there's this like scarcity feel like, or I, I'm, I might not have a spot. And, and so, you know, they, they're going to the parents. Right. And so then um, I don't want my son to be without, you know, housing. And so I imagine you get a lot of renewals early, which gives you a lot of comfort that you know that you, you've got a lot of people that are coming back in and you don't have to do the turns on those. And then second, with student housing, like all of the, well, at least for me, I had to guarantee the lease as Absolutely. a parent. Absolutely. So, you know, the, it's not just the tenant, it's the, it's the parent that is also on the hook for that lease. So from a credit perspective, that's pretty strong. 
Yeah, it is. And, and you know, that it kind of circles back to our conversation a minute ago um, with lenders. You know, we had to provide evidence to the lender that all the students had co-signers on their leases. And that's really the the issue when it comes to student housing that's by the year and not by the bed that lenders will have. It's not actually having a student in the property. It's the necessity of a co-signer, right? Um, because you're one person removed away from, from, from that lease. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's something you got to be cognizant of if you're going to, if you're going to rent to students that you should be looking for those co-signers. Um, don't leave it off because it'll greatly hurt you if you try to go sell the property. Um, not to mention, of course, the potential risk of someone leaving and not being able to recuperate rent or damages. Right. Absolutely. So why do the lenders feel like it's riskier and why do they not want that? I mean, um, you know, I, when I think of like BC properties, the, you know, the income profile for the tenant is significantly lower, most likely than the parents of the students that are attending these universities. So why do the lenders um, perceive more risk? So you kind of touched on it, but it's really all about income, right? The, the student has no income. And right. so if you think about like, yeah, a C-class tenant is going to have a lower income than an A-class tenant, which makes them higher risk. That then means that a student who has zero income is extremely high risk, um, particularly without a cosigner. Um, but I think the, the reason I'm willing, was willing to do that on this project, at least, was, um, you know, what you alluded to that, you know, all the parents, our, our properties, it's luxury housing. It's 2012 build. Like I did not live in this property when I went to school. <laughs> right. Let's just put it that way. Um, so all the parents of, of the students that live there, you know, they're attorneys, they're doctors, they're engineers, like, you know, they're people with very strong incomes who care about their financial report and their credit score and stuff. And so, um, for me personally, regardless of how the lenders feel, that's, that's what gives me comfort about, about running a business like this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. So, um, I know you're not a student housing guy. So Tulsa, Oklahoma, why Oklahoma? It's a great question. Um, so our company, Apogee, we invest both. We live in Texas, but we invest also in Oklahoma. And all our active projects to date have been in Tulsa. Um, Tulsa has some great, some great market metrics when you look at job growth, population growth, income, um, for example, we recently closed on a deal in Tulsa, a hundred unit deal, loan assumption at three and a half percent, 70 percent leverage. Um, and the median income around that property is ninety five thousand dollars within a three mile radius. Is it is it really oh, like that's that's outstanding here in Dallas, you know, right there. It's like almost unheard of. And so. You know, you don't, I say that to you and you're almost shocked that that even yeah, exists, I am. right? Right. And so, but as an investor, I can go buy something here in Dallas, which that's still going to be a really nice part and pay an extremely low cap rate for it. And it's not going to cash flow. Or I can go up to Tulsa and buy the same property, same income profile there. And it cash flows 7% from day one for investors, you know? So to me, to to be unwilling to tap into that market's potential, um, I, I don't know. I just I don't I don't see the downside to it. You know, especially when it's 
flexible exit on your loan and all that. So I was born in Oklahoma. I'm from Oklahoma City. That's where my my most of my family lives. So I'm very familiar with the state. I'm very familiar with the market. Um, we love buying in Texas. It's a great appreciation type market. Um, but if you want to get some cash flow properties in your portfolio, Oklahoma, in my opinion, it's not a bad choice. Yeah, so I've had, I have not invested in Oklahoma, um, but talking to a lot of syndicators, there's, I've had kind of two, um, two, par- two different parties. Some parties, especially when they're getting into the multifamily space, you know, Dallas is really competitive. So they find themselves, you know, having a hard time winning their first deal. So they go to Oklahoma and they're buying at cheaper, a cheaper basis per unit. Um, you know, it's, it's not as expensive. The capital raise is lower. Um, so it makes it easier, one, to win a deal, two, to raise capital for the deal, et cetera. Um, but I've had some syndicators come back and say that was not what I was looking mm-hmm. for because they bought in an area that didn't have the income growth, didn't have the job growth, and they found it very hard to, you know, keep their occupancy up and to push rents. And so knowing, I would imagine that, and, and then I've got another group of people that have gone to Oklahoma that have done very well. And it sounds like you you fit into that camp. Um, it sounds like it's very focused on the submarket. You have to really know what you're doing and buy in the right place. I think there's kind of two common mistakes I see in in operators who go buy in Oklahoma and are unsuccessful. Um, one is location. Um, so like I said, I was born in Oklahoma City. My family lives there. I like the city. There is more than 50% of Oklahoma City that I will not touch. Like it doesn't have good income statistics. There is crime. Um, it doesn't, that particular submarket does not have an upward trajectory. Like I'm not, I'm not interested in it. And so, you know, I see operators go by there because you can get such a cheap price per door. But there's a reason for it. But there's a reason for it. Exactly. I think that's, that's enough said there. The other common mistake I see is people underwriting Oklahoma assets like Texas assets. And the two biggest things you'll get hung up on is rent growth and cap rate. Um, Oklahoma does not have the cap rates that we have here in Texas. Um, just a ballpark, like, you know, good area of Dallas, good area of Oklahoma. You're probably seeing a hundred, hundred basis point difference on cap rates. Um, and so you have to underwrite that correctly because that's one of the biggest differentiators in, in, um, your ultimate returns on your analysis. Right. Um, and the second thing is rent growth. Um, Texas consistently has strong, strong rent growth. You know, you can underwrite, forget about the last two years in COVID and all that. You can pretty consistently write 3% a year here in Texas and be very comfortable with that. You know, Um, you can't do that in Oklahoma. Um, You know, it's just, it's not as strong. Um, It's not a guarantee. And so I think, you know, operators who are already underwriting deals sporty here in Dallas, they go there and underwrite it the same. Maybe they get in a bad neighborhood and then the, the rest is history. So that's, that's the two things I would look out for. No, that's, that's great. So what, what is the uh, rent growth assumptions in underwriting for, for Oklahoma? Yeah, I mean, I think like a good area with, with 
you know, the 95K I mentioned, probably a couple percent per year. So my underwriting, one of my rules is I never do rent growth year one. Like it's just the rents that you have first day is what you're going to get that year. Um, but then after that, you know, I'd probably do 2% in, in a good area. Um, I don't really... I don't really buy in bad areas, but let's just say it was a slightly less attractive area than 95K average income. (laughs) You know, if I felt good about the economy for the next couple of years, I may do 2% and then back it off to one and a half or one or something. Um, If I felt bad, I may do like one and a half percent. But probably the most important thing, in addition to just underwriting the rent growth correctly, is looking at like, what is the opportunity to force appreciation on the property, right? So if today I buy a property and it's $200 below market rent and I feel very confident in that, um, you know, I know that I've got that in the bag, right? Like I know I can make that happen regardless of what rent growth does in the future. Um, and so, you know, at that point it's, it's like, okay, one and a half to, you know, even if you underwrite it two and a half, three percent, like, you're going to be okay. It's it, you may not get the returns you're expecting, but you're still going to be okay. So I would say not banking on that for your returns is probably a big deal. Yeah. So for the listener's perspective, you know what Jonathan's talking about. You know, income in the area is. You know, when I was first doing my first syndication deal, I was going after deals that were like in the Dallas market probably 30 to 40,000 median household income. A lot of them were. And, and then I had a broker show a deal to me that I ended up buying that he's like, Darren, do you realize that median household income here is 60,000? And I thought that was great. So when I hear 95,000 yeah. in, in Oklahoma, I'm like, holy cow. That, because that's telling you how, how much money they have to put towards their rent. Yes. You know, how stretched are they? You know, the other thing that you said you talked about was, you know, what's the opportunity to force appreciation? You know, I have some people that will, you know, straight out come out and be like, what's the cap rate? And I'm like, you know, I don't I don't always look at that as being my first question because you could buy, you know, a six percent cap rate and then you can't do anything to the property and it's just gonna be six percent return right you know going forward versus buy a four percent cap rate but then you know it's two or three hundred dollars below market the you know the units are all classic units the exterior you know if you put paint on it is going to attract a better tenant profile all those things give you the ability to you know maybe move that four percent to a to a seven percent and like you don't you don't know so you have to look at both opportunities as a complete opportunity. Completely agree. This I found very interesting, and I want to get your take on it. I know it's small. It was an eight unit in Arlington, okay? Um, but you can, if I read it right, you converted all eight units to short-term rentals. And that I find interesting from a number of accounts. Um, one... Most people think of short-term rentals as, as being either, you know, high-rise or single-family homes. So uh, converting apartments to short-term rental, I'm curious as to, you know, how that went and what the profitability differential 
was for that. And then two, have you, because you have that experience, have you looked at any of your larger deals, like a hundred unit plus, and maybe you take one or two or three units and turn it into short term? Uh, all great questions. It's a lot to unpack. Um, so I mentioned, I think at the beginning of the podcast, my wife, Paul and I, we started out in the investing world doing short term rental. We bought residential properties. So think fourplex, single family, duplex, that kind of stuff. And we turned them into short term rentals in this specific neighborhood. So we live in Arlington. It's home of the Cowboys Stadium and the baseball, the Rangers, Six Flags, all that stuff. So there's a lot of tourism in our city. Uh, but then beyond that, there's also a lot of business travelers. Uh, we're right next door to University of Texas at Arlington, which is actually, you know, one of the largest universities in the state of Texas. Um, and so there's all kinds of traffic that, you know, anyone who would go to a hotel would also, you know, be a potential person for a short term rental. So we have the traffic um, and we have, you know, kind of proven out that 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 business model worked well for us and had the systems in place for it. And so I kind of have this idea, you know, I'm a visionary. I like to think of ideas, dream up ideas. It's what being an entrepreneur is about. So I had this idea a few years ago of like, hey, what if you combine the cash flow potential of a short-term rental project with the value add forced appreciation of a multifamily project, right? And like, where would that go? And so, you know, I, I can go make a million dollars a year on my little single family house. It does not change the value of that house. But if you do it on a multifamily and your NOI goes through the roof, in theory, like you've raised the value of that multifamily property drastically, right? And there's all kinds of debate because I'm not the only one who's done this now about like how that changes the cap rate and stuff. And that's probably another conversation for another day. But a broker called me one day. He's like, look, Jonathan, we have this eight unit. It's right down the street from all your other properties. It's a dump. Like it's falling apart. You know, it's it's not just like section eight housing. It's like people who are not paying rent, not taking care of it. It's bad. Um, do you have any interest in it? <laughs> and so I was like, well, I don't have, I'm not a low, like a low income housing expert. I don't, I don't do that. That's outside my swim lane. Um, but I've been interested in, you know, making a short-term rental out of it. And I went and looked at it and I mean, it was, it was rough. Yeah, it was really rough. Um, but, and so I didn't feel comfortable syndicating a project like that in my mind. I knew it was going to work out right, but I just felt like the risk profile was too high to bring in an average investor on. Um, but I have a lot of friends in this business. So I called up a few of them. I said, look guys, this may be crazy, but like, this is what I want to do. Would you guys like to JV this deal with me? And literally I had multiple people. Yep. I want to do it. I want to do it. I want to do it. I was like, okay, we're going to do it. So we purchased the property, got under contract. Um, and you know, it, the leases came up over like, let's say a three or four month time frame. It was awful. I mean, people not paying, trashing the place. We had one guy who left a week early and just like unplugged the fridge with a bunch of meat in it and then turned off the AC oh. and left the unit. Oh. Like, I oh. mean, just, the worst stories you can ever imagine. But we worked our butts off. We had a great team. We got every single one of the eight units renovated and up online, uh, permitted with the city. You have to permit here for short-term rental and up and running. And um, we're now nearing our second year of like 15 plus percent cash flow every year on that deal. Um, so it's been an awesome deal, you know? Um, but it was a lot of work up front. 
And then, you know, we're still waiting on the the final piece of it, which is what will it sell for one day when we go to sell it? And we're not really in a hurry to sell it because it's cash flowing at 15%. But when we go sell it, you know, it's like, what what are we going to be able to sell it for? And, you know, I'm hoping for like double what we pay, but we'll see. Um, awesome. So that's, that's the heart of it. Um, I think you had one more question there and it was pertaining to yeah, the large, so, large multifamily. Yeah. Right. Have you done it? I have not. Um, usually with large multifamily, your ideal lender is agency debt. Um, and agency debt does not like short-term rental on their properties. And to the extent that like, I think if, and I, I could be a little off on this, but you're not allowed to have more than let's say 5% or 10% of your property is short-term rentals. And the ones that you do have, they don't count towards the income on your property, both from a sense of like when you're acquiring the property as you're trying to meet DSCR requirements and when you go to sell the property. So it's really a huge hindrance. Now people still do it. Um, So it's not impossible. There are people that do it. And in fact, there was a large multifamily property here in Arlington that several people tried to do it with. um, And it kept falling out of contract, falling out of contract. But I would get a call from like each one of these operators because they knew I did it down the street with some of the smaller stuff. Um, But ultimately they wanted, you know, way too much for the property. It didn't make any sense. And the rents, the, the short-term rental rents that they were projecting on this were nowhere near accurate. They were much higher than what they were really getting. Um, so I saved a few people from, from burning themselves on that deal. But um, <laughs> so people have definitely thought about it. I have not done it. And those are, those are the reasons why. That's, that's interesting. So I, I didn't realize that they would actually pull that income out of the NOI. Because you think that you, you would get stronger NOI. Um, but if you have to pull it out, then then that doesn't help. Um, you know, I kind of think of it as like the next step from, I've heard people do like corporate housing mm-hmm. where, you know, they may end up renting one or multiple units that are furnished to corporation and they charge them, you know, a significant, you know, um, upcharge for, for having the ability to swap in different employees. Um Sounds like from what you're saying, the agencies would be more favorable to that than having short-term rentals. So what agency wants to see is that, is that, as I understand it, you have a long-term lease from a single individual on your rent roll. Um, and so, you know, there's kind of two ways you can actually go with this business. One is you buy the property and then you short-term rental the units yourself, right? Which definitely does not meet that requirement. The second one that I think some people have tried to do and gotten a little sticky on is you rent it to someone who's doing short-term rental at a premium, right? So like say my market rents a thousand bucks and I can rent it on short-term rental for 2000. Well, maybe I rent it to another operator for 1250, right? So I get a $250 difference. They're still paying utilities. They're still running the short-term rental business. I'm just getting a $250 difference. So that's kind of like the two approaches that I see from people a lot. I've only done the first approach. I don't, I don't really rent to other people doing, doing short-term rental. Um, but those are the two approaches. And, and so the thing was, well, okay, if I have a lease with this person, then, you know, what's the problem there? And 
I think that's where it gets sticky because maybe sometimes, depending on the specific lender or specific loan product, you can kind of slide it under the rug. But ultimately, that person does not have a guarantee of income, right? Like it's not their income that's sort of floating that unit. And usually they have multiple units. So like if they have five units and then COVID hits and they need to pay 6,000 bucks of rent next month, where does that come from? You know, they're just, they're just walking away and saying, sorry, I can't do it. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, the, the credit penalty for running, walking away from five units is probably no different than one unit. So, you know, it's not, not a lot of skin off their back. Um, so I think that's the big issue. I'm not as familiar with the corporate world, to be honest with you. So I don't know how that's counted or not counted. Um, like if you had a, you know, we live like American Airlines is down the street from us. If American right. Airlines rents one of my units and just says, we're going to pay for it year round and just have employees come and go. I don't know how that works. I'm, I'm not an expert on that, but that, that could be a potential workaround. I don't know. I, I have had syndicators say that they've had units like that and they've, they've received significant increases in sure. rent for, for, for doing that. Um, but I don't know how that's perceived from the lender. Um, so learning lessons, what, what kind of, you know, when, when I say that typically something pops in your head, like a tip, you know, a troubling situation that you weren't expecting, um, and how you dealt with it. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll just make something up here and tell me if I'm, if I'm getting off course, um, I think there's there's a few learning lessons that that I've learned. Um, I'll give I'll actually I'll give three here if that's okay. I'll make them quick. So yeah. one is for people that are brand new and like they want to be an active investor. And when I started out at this, because I'd been successful in the residential world, I thought I was going to do everything by myself. And so I went along as a new multifamily investor who didn't own any multifamily but was trying to. And just thinking, hey, I'm going to find the deal. I'm going to raise the money. I'm going to do the asset. I'm going to do everything. The truth is, most of the time, syndication is done in a team environment. And I'm talking specifically on the general partnership side. And so if you're a new investor looking to get into the multifamily space, one of the best things you can do is understand your skill sets and your value that you can bring to a team. And then look for people who have complementary skill sets who you know, like, and trust that can be partners on deals. And then you're likely to find your first deal, your second deal, and really take off a lot faster. So that would be, that's one lesson learned, one thing I did wrong. Um, it's hard to come up with one lesson for you know being an active sponsor because there's just so many. I learn things all the time, honestly. Um, but I, I think one big thing is, is just pay attention to detail. Like, Anytime that there's a mistake that I've made or I've seen people make, um, it usually comes down to just not fully understanding a situation. And in this industry, there's so many balls in the air at once that it can be easy to miss something. Um, but missing something can be really costly. And so whether it's reviewing, you know, lender documents, insurance documents, um, you know, partnership agreements, take the time to really understand everything and make sure you're a master at it so you don't you know, bite off something that, that you didn't want. Um, and then the last one that I, this is one I definitely want to give is for passive investors. Um, so I invested passively before I invested actively and I've made a lot of different passive investments. Most of them are doing fine, but you know, I've one in particular that's been kind of a negative experience and I've learned probably more from that deal than even any of my active deals. And I would say that one is like, 
really know the sponsorship team that you're investing with. Like, what is each person's role? What is their responsibility? What is their track record? There's a lot of people who are on social media, just like myself, I'm on social media, but they seem like they're really good, but maybe they're not as good as they let on. And so really take the time to learn pe- learn about people, build up trust with people over time, understand their track record before you invest as a, a limited partner in someone else's deal. That would be my advice. I think all those learning lessons are, are great. You know, the first one, you know, for new people, you know, there's some people that they're like, what value do I provide? You know, and, and I think that in this world, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a little bit of speed dating that happens, you know, when you go out and network, um, when you're trying to figure out, you know, who's got complementary skill sets and how you team up with other people. You know, look, if you say, here's my value, there's some people that are like, yeah, I got that covered. No, you know, I don't need that. And then they're like on to the next person. Well, if you're somebody that can't take that, you know, and just let it roll off your back <laughs> and go to the next person, that's, that's going to be difficult for you because yeah. it's not personal. They just have that piece covered. Now you go to the next person, next person, next person. And then all of a sudden you get somebody who's like, holy cow, you're exactly who I'm looking for. Yeah. Like I, I love doing this other piece and you love doing that piece. You know, so you have to be willing to, to get the nose to get to that right person. A hundred percent. And I don't know if I, if I mentioned this, but when I started multifamily, Paul and I, we went through a, a mentorship program, like, you know, a lot, a lot of people do when they get started. And we're now actually both coaches in that program. So I talked to a lot of new investors and, you know, hear stories and give advice, all that fun stuff. I really enjoy it. And so I, you know, people bring, or students bring that up all the time. And sometimes sometimes the, the hard conversation I have to have with them is you may not be able to bring any value today. Like you may literally not have the skill sets to underwrite. You may not have the network to capital raise. And what you need to do is just decide which one am I going to go work on so that three, four or five months from now, I do have that value. Um, so I think that's kind of a mistake is everyone's like, oh, you have value somewhere. Of course you do. You're a person, you have value, just maybe not in a deal right now. Right. So um, you know, you need to figure out if you don't have something today, what is it that you're going to work to build and have three, four, five, six months in the future? That That's a great point. I mean, you, you know, if I take that to, let, let's just say a young guy in their, in their 20s, I could picture some people I've talked to and they're like, yeah, but I don't, like all my friends are, you know, in their 20s, they don't make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, go talk to your your dad and your dad's friends and people that you're friends with, your aunt and uncle and their their network, but that's going to take time to build that. And yeah. then don't sell just yourself, but sell your team. You know, you're, absolutely. You know, you're 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 going to be bringing on this property management company that manages you know five thousand units in the market, or this attorney, or you know, you're partnering with this guy who has you know he's done t- you know ten deals. And so now all of a sudden that, you know, the older generation that has the funds, they start looking at, okay, well, you know, I, I trust you as a person, as a character. I just didn't know that you, you know, were aligned with all these other people that have the experience. Right. Very well said. Couldn't say better. So talk about family. You, you and your wife are, you know, partnered up. 
um, went through the mentorship program. Paula is your, your wife. Um, you know, talk about working as a, you know, together and kind of what your roles and responsibilities are, you know, between the two of you. And, and then do you have a family? Do you have kids? And, and what your kind of outlook is for real estate with having a family? Yeah, no, great question. Um, try not to ramble too much. So um, Paul and I, we met at A&M. We were both students there. So that was 10 years ago. We got married six years ago. And pretty shortly after we got married, she informed me one day that we needed to find a hobby together. And um, anyone knows me, I, I only, I work and then I run. Those are the only two things I do. I'm a runner. I enjoy it. Um, but I don't really have a lot of other hobbies per se. And so I was like, what are we going to do? Like play golf or I don't know. So anyways, one day I was reading a book pretty shortly thereafter, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And so I got this idea like, hey, she's a finance major. She knows all about money. Like what if we invested in like real estate, just bought a house and invested and we can do that together. And, you know, she really loved the idea. It took off and we just started learning and learning and learning. And we had such a great time listening to podcasts, reading books, talking about things, and eventually did our first, you know, project, which was a house hack, and then another one and another one. Um, and so it's something we've done together from the beginning. Um, we're both very type A personalities. You know, we will kind of walk all over each other, but we had a lot of fun doing it. Um, and then when we started the multifamily, uh, you know, we did it for about a year or so before I left my corporate job. And so then I've been heavily focused on that, you know, probably doing 80, 90% of the work because it's my full-time job for the last year and a half. And then about a month ago, she also quit her full-time job. So now we, you know, no joke, work together full-time as syndication, doing syndications um, and just investing in general. Um, And so now we're kind of redefining what that looks like for us. And, you know, so I'm more the the visionary of the company. I like to underwrite deals, come up with business plans, talk to partners, meet people. She's a little bit more of kind of our, you know, COO, our chief operating officer. So she's the asset management, the day-to-day, you know, organizing stuff, keeping it clean, um, you know, saying, hey, don't forget, like, we got to do this, this, and this today. And so I think we complement each other really well in that sense. Um, and by kind of keeping in those two swim lanes, we don't necessarily run over each other as much. So, um, we pretty much have a very similar investing philosophy, very similar risk tolerance. So I'd say that all, all plays in really well. So I don't know, some people, everyone asks that question, but we don't, we don't actually have a lot of problems with it. Um, we don't have kids yet. When we do have kids, I would love to come up with a great story of what we're going to do, but honestly, I have no idea. So you'll just have to have me on the show a year after I have kids and then I'll tell you. (laughs) Right. Awesome. Well, you know, I, I have, you know, I've had uh, husband-wife combos on the show plenty of times, and a number of them have said exactly what you you said. They start, kind of started out just all, you know, working together, doing everything. But then once they kind of figured out their lanes and then let the, each other work their lanes, they said that it, it helped them, mm. um, you know, both from a, relationship and also from a business standpoint. So, um, well, you've accomplished a ton in a short period of time, you know, kind of what's, what's next? Like what's, you said, you're the visionary. What, where do you go from here? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of it is scaling, you know, just scaling units, but doing it the right way, which means buying deals that make sense, 
Um, so, you know, we can continue to have a good reputation in our company. Um, we're very fortunate right now that, you know, I have friends who they're, they're great people. They're brilliant, but you know, they bought a couple bad deals with bridge loans. And so most of their time and their focus is attending to those deals right now. And I'm very blessed. I'm not in that position. All ours are long-term fixed rate debt. We're doing distributions on all our, like they're going well. And so a hundred percent of my focus is acquisitions. It's, looking for deals that are distressed from management that have renovation or, you know, lender distress um, and buying those deals over the next year and a half. And so um, that's where I'm focused. Paul is a little bit more on the capital raise side, you know, making sure we have the investors to, to backfill those deals. Um, and so it's really scaling the business, but, but doing it the right way. Um, you know, we're looking for a lot of deals here in DFW, which is like you said, a very hard market to break into. And so, we think this is a great time to really build a bigger reputation here in this city. Um, and we're kind of at a point where we really like more B class type deals. We're not into the older C class. It, it just, that, that kind of stuff has not worked out for us near as well. And so, you know, we like newer, nicer deals that, that work. So that's, that's the direction we're heading. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of syndicators over the last, I say three years, start trading up into from C class to B class and, and some even into the kind of a minus, um, area. So totally get it. Um, Hey, if somebody wants to reach out to you and get to know you better, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. We have a, a website for our company, um, which is Apogee MFC, like multifamilycapital.com. Um, we've got all kinds of information about us on there. I'm also extremely active on LinkedIn. Um, and so if you want to send me a message there, I'll definitely respond to. Great. Hey, can you spell yeah, um, absolutely. your so, entire website? Sure. It's Apogee. So A-P-O-G-E-E-M-F-C, like multifamilycapital.com. Fantastic. Well, Jonathan, I appreciate you coming on. Um, listeners, I hope that you enjoyed that one. Until next week, signing off. Thanks for having me, Darren. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you, and please share the show with a friend. 